Hey guys, Janine Kenny here with another awesome episode of Central Monmouth Advice Givers. Today we're talking with Scott Roskis, a special education teacher at Manalapan English Town Middle School. Scott's been teaching for about 15 years. He was recently named Educator of the Year at a school where he runs a social skills club that fosters connection and shared experiences among students of all abilities. Scott recently began teaching yoga at a club for children with disabilities and their siblings, too. He's an all-around awesome guy who is improving the world around him every single day. I've been lucky enough to call Scott my friend for almost nine years, and I'm so excited to have him here to share his stories with you. In this episode, Scott shares his stories and gives valuable advice for anyone with children in their lives. I have no doubt you will learn a lot from this exceptional teacher. All right, Scott, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up, go to school? What was your life like before you became a teacher? I grew up in Tom's River, not very far from the Seaside Heights Bridge. So my childhood was uh, mostly spent, it was mostly spent outdoors, going to the beach. Tom's River was not developed at that time. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, so we would just ride our bikes everywhere and do all of that. It was a lot like Stranger Things in a way. Picturesque. Yeah. The true Jersey Shore. Yeah, there was a uh, drive-in movie theater uh, right across Route 37. We would like sneak into the woods and watch the movies <laughs> in a drive-in movie theater. It was literally a different world back then. So you know? like life like we see in the movies. Yeah, yeah. Or it, like you said, Stranger Things. <laughs> yeah, it's like that idyllic time. You know, and the thing is, as I get older, a beautiful thing is the... I just keep remembering and cherishing all of the good and beautiful things and some of the other things... They, those, the bad memories don't really stick. Um, you know, seaside can be challenging because I have so many beautiful memories connected to the boardwalk. What's your favorite? What, what's like your best growing up on the Jersey Shore story? Uh, that was always Island Beach State Park. And then just the adventures on the boardwalk with my friends, like we would all just go and that's where we hung out. And uh, everything, the, the log flume on the boardwalk, going under the boardwalk the ocean at night, the everything, the way everything lit up. So it was, and I'm sure a lot of people of my generation, um, they feel a little something in them when they go now post Sandy and after the fire that occurred, like right. the year after Sandy. It was devastating. Know. It was, it feels a little bit like a different place. Um, luckily, Island Beach State Park is still what it is and that, that I... Would hope that everyone gets some time to spend there. Yeah, it's beautiful there. Yeah. So did you go to college in the area? Were you local for that too? Well, I initially went to OCC uh, while I was, like, I, I have my career now, which is like my calling, but like many people with a calling, you almost take it for granted. And like, I tried other avenues. I explored other things. And so I did that at OCC. I would take a bunch of classes. I took like every Spanish course they have, and I can hardly speak Spanish now. But I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a Spanish teacher. Maybe I'll do this or that. So I kept exploring things while I was working. And when I came to the realization that, you know, the majority of my joyful moments of service were related to working with individuals with disability and empower, helping to empower people with disabilities and my times with my sister that and her friends that special ed was the way to go. And at that point, I transferred to uh, the College of New Jersey. And that was a remarkable experience. It's an incredible, incredible place. Okay. Yeah, it's like a small enough 
it's a small enough college to be cozy, but uh, everybody there is very, very hardworking and very serious about their studies. And uh, yet, you know, people hold the door for you and are like extremely polite, very well mannered on campus. I, I will be going back there for my grad work. Oh, that's exciting. But, yeah, it's and it literally felt like coming home in a way, especially those of us in the special ed department. It was a, a very small, tight-knit community. We all supported each other. Do you keep in touch with those people now? I do. When I was on Facebook, I'm on and off Facebook. There are a handful that I, I keep in touch with and... Uh, mainly, you know, just to make sure they're doing okay. Right. Well, now you got to get uh, back know. on Facebook so you can yeah. find all these people again and rekindle all those old relationships. Yeah. And it's a thing of like celebrating each other and, you know, encouraging each other. So that 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 is a, a, a very important thing to me as well. Cool. Mm -hmm. So you discussed that you knew early on that teaching was your calling. Um, you mentioned your sister. How did that all play play a role? In so this? my older sister growing up, uh, she passed away a few years ago. My older sister growing up, Mary Beth, um, she was, um, you know, within education and dis the field of disability, like, unfortunately, there is labeling. Some labeling gets you the services that you need, but some labeling is stigmatizing. And the label used at that time was uh, mental retardation, which is... Uh, you know, not a term I like to use. Uh, I prefer things like now we have like intellectual disability, things like that, that right. aren't as socially stigmatizing. But so growing up with her, I would, you know, I'd coach her with her Special Olympics stuff. I always helped her with her work. I had the opportunity and uh, at Tom's River Intermediate East was wonderful. They were very kind. They let me volunteer in her classes and uh, I'd get to spend like every day with her and her friends in school. And, uh, it was, it was very, very nice. So her friends became my friends and it was a wonderful time. And it, it was, and as they got older and as my sister got older, I got to see, you know, firsthand what opportunities were out there for individuals with say intellectual disability or people with certain physical disability, disabilities or, uh, communication issues, things like that. Mm -hmm. So as I got older and I started to see where like, okay, I'm, I have all these opportunities, my opportunities continued expanding, right. especially as my education increased and my intellectual skills increased, my opportunities expanded, but hers kind of flatlined and she was able to live a very enriching life and, and all of that. But there were things that she wanted in life that society at that time really wasn't ready to offer. So I do, uh, I do feel it's very important that through the schools we're providing opportunities now. And I'm very appreciative that our society is becoming more open and providing more opportunities. It's, there really are great things going on, you know, as far as job readiness skills, vocational opportunities, right. opportunities for legitimate participation in society, not just, um, you know, not like that patronizing way of letting someone participate where they're really not creating something of value. Right. We need to provide opportunities where anyone, regardless of their ability or regardless of their, whatever their makeup is, everyone needs to be able to contribute and create value. And that's how, the, that's one of the main ways they're going to feel fulfilled. Absolutely. You know, I'm sure everybody can relate to that need to feel like they're doing something to help their fellow human beings, their community. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like this, this thing of, 
you know, I, you've known me a long time, you know, I do different things that are like, quote unquote, like volunteer work and all of that. But a lot of that for me stems from a recognition of what I think is like an unfair situation right now in society where, you know, right now in our culture, some people have, some people can contribute more than others. Um, we just need to find a way to facilitate the contribution of those other people. How do we, because it's not that they lack something to contribute. It's that they're lacking the opportunity. Simple thing, like in the disability field, we talk about simple things that have a universal application. You know, when they finally were putting curb cuts on sidewalks so people who use wheelchairs could actually access a sidewalk, you know, that then, you know, that and say, and that say, and, and wheelchair ramps. That provided accessibility for a lot of people with oh, yeah. mobility issues. So when we, when we provide appropriate access to people, it's not so much an act of compassion as a recognition of their humanity and their right to full participation. Right. So when we, when we do something as simple as a ramp, you know, then you find, oh, wow, well, there's someone using a cane and they find it's easier to use the ramp. Mm-hmm. You know, here's someone who, you know, a young athlete with an injury who may have a temporary physical setback is going to benefit from using that ramp. And that will help them with the rehabilitative process rather than aggravating an injury by taking two flights of stairs. Right. And so, it, you know, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. It, it makes so much sense. It's it's funny because, you know, we take those things for granted nowadays that, you know, not very long in our history weren't taken for granted it's interesting to think forward and i i wonder you know 10 15 20 years from now what things that we're working so hard to get across now will be taken for granted as just normal everyday things it's a great thing to think about Mm -hmm. that you know the things we're fighting so hard for now will be just thought as commonplace in the future well yeah and we're on the verge of it now um the interesting thing with disability is Obviously, uh, for most people, it's what they, it's the things that they most clearly see, the things that are most clearly visible. So what people most quickly take notice of is say physical disability. So our society still took too long of a, our society took too long of a time and many individuals with disability had to fight way too hard and their loved ones and others had to fight way too hard to get the rights they got, you know, the government didn't just freely allow curb cuts and things like that. People had to fight hard for it. But now you're noticing physical access to things. Where we're at right now is intellectual and perceptual access to things. So say perceptual, like meaning like, let's say vision. Okay. Mm -hmm. There are people who are like, well, uh, I've heard people say, and I don't know, I wouldn't want to question their heart the their heart but i've heard people say well you know why would we provide modifications for students in school but life doesn't provide us with modifications and what they're not understanding is life does provide modifications and accessibility in multiple multiple ways your cell phone allows you to have the text written read to you you can speak and have that then be brought 
and that have that being typed as text. That stems right. from the Kurzweil reader, Ray Kurzweil, who's now huge in science. He developed that technology a very long time ago. That was for individuals with disability. A lot again, universal application. A lot of the great stuff on your phone with t you know the size of the text. Even though there are people who may adjust the lighting on their screens, people who may have a computer screen where they, you know what, I kind of like a black background with white text. <laughs> that all comes from the world of disability and the and like perceptual impairments, things like that. People with vision issues. So many things come from that. So I think the thing is we need to think less about out of the goodness of our hearts. We are doing these things for these quote unquote lesser fortunate individuals, right? We need to move away from that and we need to mine that experience and say, this is from this, we can create opportunity and access for more and more people, for everybody. That's, we're really, that's where technology can be of such great use, you know? And even the thing of like, there is a thing many teenagers experience, um, we call it the executive functions. There are many, many things related to the executive functions and it's related to the frontal lobes. And the thing is that your mind, as it's developing, it develops those skills last because you know how your mind, it's not really fully developed until you're like in your early 20s, especially right. for males. So teenage boys, you know, people get often get, your typical teenage boy, even considered academically bright, they can be indecisive at times. They can have, they could be distractible. They could have difficulty transitioning from one task to the next. They could have difficulty stopping a task and starting a new one. They can have difficulty starting a task. They could sit there and literally not start. How many of us could relate to that? How many right. times have Absolutely. we sat down? That's all the executive function skills. So you can support your mind with tools for that as well there's uh, mel robbins has this thing where she does it it's like a, a countdown she does five four three two one and she has you count down in your mind five four three two one and then you go and you act and you like force that physical act of doing what you need to do like the um there's a saying inspiration follows action like don't wait for the motivation you have to act first some people need some external thing to drive that. Many people have alarms set on their phones to get them to do certain things. In Google Notes and other apps, you can have a task that you need done. You can set an alarm for it. The alarm will go off and that task will come up. Right. So, I use, I use you know, that every week. <laughs> yeah. So that's the thing. It's a matter of we all are dealing with, we're all dealing with managing our own mental and physical makeup. And that's the thing we need to see. We need to stop thinking of individuals with disabilities as other or, say, people with severe health impairments or, you know, people who are elderly. We have to stop thinking of them as these others and that we're all on the same continuum of human experience and they were all impacted in varying ways. Right. You know, and that kind of comes also from the world of autism where so many people now there's so much education out there for people about what autism is. And they say how like you, you know, it's a spectrum. So you can have, you can be impacted by various things in various ways, 
you know. Right. So depending on the individual with autism, like no two people with autism are exactly alike. Just like no two individuals. No two people. I think, yeah. you know, I was, I forget who it was that was talking about, um, oh, Seth Godin's new podcast. Yeah. Akimbo. Uh, he talks about how when you try to create something for the average person taking, it was uh, pilot's seats. Mm -hmm. uh, he talked about how they took the most important 17 or 20 something measurements, um, you know, length from fingertip to wrist, wrist mm -hmm. to elbow, elbow to shoulder, um, and put the average, but then the, and they made the chair to fit this average person, but nobody fit the seat. Yes. And he got into this whole discussion about how none of us are average and yeah. how important it is to recognize and appreciate all of our differences. And I, I think, you know, that seems to align with what yes. you're talking about. Well, and that speaks to a larger societal issue. And this is why, if you think about all human difference, and you think about when we norm things, oh, okay, so this was the chair. So this is the chair. This chair is based on the norm. Therefore, if you do not fit into this chair or if this chair does not work for you you are not normal which is it just becomes like, binary like this that's yeah it's that whole thinking of like you're this or you're that the whole dualistic thing right. so you know and that's why like we're we're i'm very excited about the young people that i'm meeting i'm very excited about the people i'm meeting who are like in their 20s because they have a much greater tolerance for complexity. They embrace complexity. They embrace difference. You know, they look, they look at things about adaptability and like, well, how, you know, yeah, we don't have to force ourselves to one norm. How can we increase the flexibility of this product or object so that it, it, it can be most accessed by others? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because if you think about, growing up and if we all think in our lives like how many people judge themselves according to whether or not they fit in particular clothing or how they look in particular clothing because somewhere out there there's a norm that you have to compare yourself to right you know and there's a lot of pushback against all of that now which is you know you're seeing it in the field of fashion where you know you're having now look at how diverse the models are that they're using for all of that, you Which know, is wonderful. Finally, it's wonderful. And to many, it may seem as trivial, but it's not because many people look externally for their models. And if you're providing people with a model, that's going to cause them unhappiness. Then that's going to be a constant trigger for their unhappiness. Then they're going to live a life, not from a place of joy and strength, but from a place of like impairment of feeling unhappy. So then all of their actions are going to be influenced by that. Right. Like with students, if we have students operating from a place of strength rather than, you know, this feeling of like, well, I'm, I'm just not good at math. You know, when students say things like that, we cannot accept those statements from them. We cannot reinforce those statements from them, you know? Yeah, I could. So it's funny. I read a lot. I read a lot on the mind. I read a lot of different literature and, and many, many books on child development and things for teachers. And a lot of them are rehashings of the same old thing or just improvements on former things. But I, I'm very, very impressed by Carol Dweck and her book, Mindset. Uh, she's all over YouTube, did a great, you know, TED Talk, all of that. But I, 
it's funny, you and I talk sometimes and you're like, hey, you know, is there a book you'd recommend? Or I'm always bothering you <laughs> with book recommendations. I, I've taken a lot know, of them. Yeah. You've opened my mind to a lot of things, thankfully. And the thing with Carol Dweck is that it, it's relatively simple, but it's something that we would need to, you almost have to make it a daily uh, discipline. So she says you have um, two mindsets, essentially. You have a fixed mindset or the growth mindset. So people with a fixed mindset believe that their traits, they're just givens. Like, okay, these are the, you know, you got to play the cards you're dealt kind of thing. This is who I am, you know, blah, blah, blah kind of thing. Um, you have a certain amount of brains and talents and you can't really change all that. You just have to do the best you can given that. You know, which, again, the research on neuroplasticity and the brain is debunking the fixed mindset. Okay. It's saying, oh, no, you can. You can, you know, even this whole 10,000 hours thing, you know, which was Anders Ericsson, you know, you like through diligent practice, you can change your brain. You can grow your brain through cardiovascular exercise through healthy eating that doesn't promote infl inflammation in the body you can develop a more healthy brain so and therefore develop skills and, and all of that so the person with the growth mindset um, doesn't see things as fixed and therefore they think that through dedication effort through hard work i can achieve these things um what happens is people with a growth mindset they keep trying and keep trying like I'm sure everyone's familiar with with um, grit. Right. Grit's become a very popular thing. That's Angela Duckworth. Awesome book. Awesome okay. book. Yeah. The thing with grit that's funny is because as teachers, we try very hard to help our students be more resilient. Uh, and grit is the new term, but we've been working on helping students become more resilient for a very, very long time. Uh, what we do now is we do a lot of evidence-based teaching where... Um, you know, you don't just tell a kid you did a good job. You give them evidence of their good job. You know, you say, hey, you know, you don't say empty statements like, oh, yeah, no, 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 you're fine. You're good. No, you actually say, okay, this was the expectation of this task. This is what you achieved on that task. You got a 90 on this test. You obviously prepared. You worked hard. I'm your teacher. I saw you work hard. You can achieve 100. OK, that's a thing we as teachers. And if you feel your child's not in a situation, talk to your teacher. We must provide we must provide an environment and we must provide tasks that students do have the opportunity to succeed at if they do their best. When we take away other factors, like as a special working in special education, mm -hmm. I can modify a test, a test or a task so that like I tell my students, I say, guys, I'll level the playing field. Like I'm here to level the playing field to make sure that it's fair. You know, you let's say simple, like you have a visual impairment. You cannot read the page. You know, you can't read the words on the page. Well, I can give you audio. I can give you Braille. We'll make sure you have accessibility for that. You still got to do the hard work. Right. Like I'm not here no to make things out. easier. I'm here to make things fair because they need to work hard. In order to develop, they need to work hard. Right. Accommodations aren't about things being easier. They're about, like you just said, leveling the playing field. Yeah, there's a famous saying about fairness, that fair isn't everyone getting the same thing. Fair is everybody getting what they need. I like that. And if we as a society define ourselves, you know, as, you know, we're like, a, we're this democratic republic, everyone participates together, everyone ha can contribute, then give people 
access to contribution. Let people contribute. If we're giving our citizens an expectation, we need to make sure we can facilitate that. You know, it's it's really so for me, you know, again, it, it comes down to being simple, but I think about these things a lot. Well, that's great that you do. I can only imagine that. Well, I can't imagine because I know because I know you personally. Um, I know that this is something that your students and their parents you know, one of the reasons that they are such advocates for you is because you are such an advocate for them. Um, so what are some other things that you would like to tell parents out there? What are some, what's some advice that you would give them? I think the, um, I say it a lot. It feels there are two other things and I say them a lot and they feel, it feels silly saying the one, which is like, get to know your child's brain. You know, like imagine that your your child's mind, your child's thinking ability, your child's brain, it's not fully developed yet. They're learning how to be people. They are not miniature grown-ups. They are not little adults. <laughs> they are children developing into adults. And um, there are even uh, many experts in the field of of human development who talk about you know, they mentioned that the ages of 20 to 30, they now call like youth because that's still a developmental phase. And if you look now in our culture, a lot of us don't really feel like we got our acts together, had an idea of what's going on in life until we hit about 30. Yeah. Then we start I, feeling like grownups. That was true for me for sure. Yeah. And in our 20s, we're still like, you know, like, wait, I don't still have, I don't have a lot figured out yet, you know? And so the thing is with, with a child, let's say, um, regardless of their age, don't overtax, don't overtax their mind with a task that they cannot accomplish. You can give them a task, just facilitate the, the task to allow them an opportunity for success. So, uh, and that then leads to empowerment. So here's a um, simple example. Like we say things like do your homework or go clean your room, mm -hmm. right? Um, yep, all the time. <laughs> for us, and that's a thing, if we're saying it all the time, we should only have to say it once and then the child can do it successfully. And then it becomes then a habit. Habit itself becomes a trigger. And then the kid maintains a clean room. Like what parent wouldn't love that, right? Sounds good to me. So when we say clean your room, it involves a multitude of, a multitude of mental operations, uh, many, many subtasks, many, many if-then questions, so many things, categorization skills, organization skills, all of that. So if we, we, we can attempt that ourselves, but if we look at ourselves and we think of a task, we typically do a task analysis, you know, where you can go backwards from completion to start, start at the end, go back to the beginning and break down the necessary tasks. We will often with ourselves, we may write jot down notes or things like that. With a child, instead of saying, go do this, sit down with the child, two to three minutes. Okay, you got to clean your room. What's the plan? Let's plan together your process for cleaning your room, your method, what you're going to do. Write it down on a checklist. The kid could check the boxes. Even if the kid doesn't have uh, a lot of language, pictures. Okay. You know, you could, you could, you could 
take pictures of the room. Once the room is exactly the way you want it, which obviously that becomes negotiable because it's the child's room. And as time goes on, you want to, you know, they're going to want more ownership of their space, which is a healthy need. Uh, but then that, that, inc- that requires the skill of negotiation, which is hugely important in our culture right now because many people lack negotiation skills. So take a picture of the room in its ideal setting and you can put those pictures down on paper as a cue. You could make a checklist. The child could check off the list. Give the kid the checklist. Go for it. Expect the first not, time to not work out so well. But then the next time it's time to clean the room. Hey, how did it go? You know, or even at the end of that time. All right, debrief. How did it go? Uh, what worked? What didn't work? Well, you know, um, my sock drawer wasn't big enough for all of my socks. Can I change my drawer to do this or that? Or can I put my socks in a basket? I like having a basket. Maybe they could be in a basket by where I keep my shoes. Okay. You know? So giving them some control also. Give them control. Give them... Well, give them control for valid solutions. We want to empower... We want to empower and reinforce legitimate empowering behaviors. And you'll notice when a child doesn't feel powerful or they don't feel empowered in a healthy way because they'll seek power in negative ways, much like adults do. Right. So you're going to get, you know, the tantruming, things like that. Some of that is legitimately neurological, legitimately emotional. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your typical kid. You know, I'm talking about a kid who's not impacted by something else. And the kids who are impacted by something else, you would just modify the format. You'd modify the way you talk to them. But it really, yeah, it really is that simple. Like, what behaviors do you want to reinforce? Years ago in, in the field of special ed, I did this one internship up at Robert Wood Johnson, and we focused on something called positive behavioral supports. And it was a matter of we support, you know, you support the positive behavior, but all behavior is a form of communication. Mm-hmm. So whatever it is, regardless, whatever the other human being does, child, adult, whatever, whatever their behavior is doing, we are social beings all the research is out there. Everybody's seeing that. I don't think, I don't think it's new to tell people that we're social beings, but I think I the thing, <laughs> I hope not, but I also think, I don't think, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's as accepted yet how much our, our minds are wired socially. And, okay. you know, it's extremely significant and extremely powerful, but long story short, you can err on the safe side. And think that behavior has a communicative intent. Okay. So let's say if a kid, you know, if, if a kid's tantruming or whatever, I had a, a friend's child who were very close and uh, she was having a rough moment the other day, you know, and I just came right out and I said, what do you want? And she's like, well, blah, 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 talking about something in the future or like an hour from now. I was like, no, what do you want right now? Mm-hmm. What do you want right now? Asking a child what they want empowers them. It validates them because they don't often feel validated. It's kind of like we run the world and they're like, if you think back to when you were a kid, you know, you sat at the kiddie table, you did this and that. You almost get this. Yeah, you get this vibe that you're like a second class citizen almost, you know. So we want to, you know, you don't give a child free reign because love provides boundaries. But within those loving boundaries, we provide empowering choices. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the thing like is that. with the, when you do a debrief of the child developing their method for how they want to clean their room or whatever, just say, okay, what do you want to try next time? You know, what worked for you? What didn't work? We're all being inundated in college, even in high school, you know, with the, the, like the success language. Many of the things that have worked very well in the business world are now seeping into our regular lives, you know, and many of those positive things that the business world took, they were getting from the field of psychology. Okay. You know, so it went to business, these very successful business leaders, they write a book about what works for them. Most people in our society value wealth and material rich, right? Material wealth. So they're like, oh, these, these people are rich and successful in business. Um, let me read that person's book. And then you see like they have these daily habits, these ways of organizing, the ways that they talk to their employees and staff. Right. You know, I've, I worked, you know, you know, I, I worked in management. Yeah. And it's, it's a matter of the way the way we communicate, the expectations we give to people, the boundaries we set for people, that all allows people to grow and develop relative to, you know, relative to their ability in a fair way. And I, you know, and that's how, that's how people can become productive members of society. Does that make, you know what I'm saying? Does yeah, that make it makes sense? sense to me. And I, you know, I, I've learned so much from you in the last half hour. I'm sure all of our listeners have as well. Um, I feel like you and I could sit here and talk for another two or three hours about all this, which I'd love to do, but I don't think anybody is ready to listen to us talk <laughs> yeah, for another two yeah. or three hours. Um, so I think we're going to wrap it up today, but I would love to have you back on the show um, mm-hmm. in a future episode or two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll, we'll definitely find more ways to help you get this discussion out and, and further this discussion with our listeners. Um, I know you said you're in the process of getting yourself back on Facebook. Yeah, I'll be back up in a few. I just have to update pictures. <laughs> it's yeah. It's I mean, a lot everybody of relates. I know. I get it. Well, it's a lot of <laughs> it's 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 work, but there's so many people I've lost touch with that I miss, and so many people I meet every day who are like, "Are you on Facebook?" And it's like, "No." And the beautiful thing is, my students are all like, "Facebook's for old people." You know, it's like, "Yes, it is." <laughs> And by old, they mean anyone over 20. Yeah. Well, all right. So I will put your Facebook information, if you have Mm -hmm. it by the time we broadcast this, on the show notes Mm -hmm. uh, for everybody if they would like to get in touch with you. In the meantime, if you guys have any questions that you'd like to ask Scott, you can email them to me, Janine at JaneneKenna.com. And then I will forward them to Scott and we can either add them to our next show or a newsletter mm. or something, we'll, we'll find a way to answer everybody's questions. For and them. I love giving book recommendations. Yes. Yeah. So we had two today, Mindset and Grit. Uh, Mindset, Grit. There's also um, by Baumeister, uh, Willpower. We did not get into Willpower. That could be a whole episode itself. <laughs> but, I think um, you need a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Thank everybody, you. for listening. We'll talk again soon.